Uh, what got you there with got you got you? What got you there with Shonda Laney? What got you there with Shonda Laney? What got you there with Shonda Laney? Brad Thor is the number one New York Times best-selling author of 19 thrillers, including Spymaster, which according to the Washington Times is one of the all-time best thriller novels. Brad has been one of Sean's favorite authors for over a decade and is so excited for you all to get to hear more about Brad and his journey. Brad has been called the master of thrillers and America's favorite author. His best-selling novels have been published in over 30 countries. Brad discusses going from an award-winning creator, producer, writer, and host of the TV show Traveling Light to conquering his fear and becoming a best-selling writer. Hey guys, I want to tell you about the brand I'm obsessed with right now. And you guys know I'm pretty obsessive about the brands I work with, especially when it comes to athletic apparel. You guys need to check out 10,000. You need to head to 10,000.cc and you guys can enter code WGYT and you're going to receive 20%, yes, 20% off your entire order. Why do I love 10,000? 10,000 created the only training shorts you'll ever need. They do so by simplifying your options to deliver three premium shorts that perfectly cover all the ways you train. They have one built for versatility, another for durability, and one super lightweight, perfect for one of those runs or whatever else you do for fitness. No matter what you do, they have you covered. CrossFit, running, spin, yoga, lifting, or your weekend adventure, it doesn't matter what you do for fitness. They have a short for every way you train. They make it super simple, too, to find the right short. Just pick the short that's best for you, your lifestyle, personalize it with your individual needs with a custom liner and inseam options, and start getting after it. Not sure if they have the right short? No need to worry, you guys. Make a return or exchange. They offer free shipping, free exchanges, and free returns on every order. Like I said, 10,000 is my favorite brand right now. I am wearing their apparel all the time when I'm working out. I can't recommend them enough. Head to 10,000.cc, enter code WGYT, and you've got 20% off your entire order. Making change transpire. That's the mission behind the most amazing tasting protein bar brand taking the nutrition industry by storm. That brand, they're MCT Co. And they make the most delicious, keto-friendly, all-natural collagen protein bars. If you're obsessed with the quality of food going into your body like I am, then head out and pick up these amazing bars jammed with 10 grams of collagen protein. They only have two to three net carbs, no added sugar, and loaded with high-quality MCT oil for the healthy fats from coconuts. Whether you're busy running the kids around from activity to activity, a professional athlete, or just someone looking for a great-tasting convenience snack, do yourself a favor. Head to mctco.com and use code WGYT for 20% off your order. Brad Thor, one of the major reasons I wanted to have you on is because you're at the intersection of so many things I'm intrigued by, such as your entrepreneurial spirit and then a best-selling author of thriller writing. I mean, it's just things I love and, and you're culminating all of them. But first, let's get you warmed up. I know you've been busy on the book tour with three quick questions. If you were a professional wrestler, what would your entrance song be coming into the ring? <laughs> uh, wow. You got to fire up the crisis. Now, this is what you're going to learn about me, Sean. I am incredibly thoughtful and the details matter. I had to do my favorite five for Don Imus, uh, his show. So we used to have guests pick five songs and it took me like an entire day to pick the songs because I needed songs that even if they began them from the first bar, people who are not watching the TV were going to turn around and look and say, who the hell's coming on this show? <laughs> So uh, put on the spot right now, uh, it's got to be ACDC back in black because we get the crowd completely fired up right away. Uh, even better, we get a little better idea in your framework, how you view things. So next up, sitting down with one cocktail or beverage of choice, what are you going with? Wow. All right. One cocktail or beverage of choice, uh, bourbon. Specific brand? Uh, I'm a big fan of the Colonel Taylor, and I like it a lot because my liquor store in Nashville doesn't always have it. So when it comes in, it's a surprise and it's a treat, and the people in my neighborhood hate me because I buy every single bottle in the store. So let's do next year when the new book comes out. We'll be sitting down having a few glasses of that. Final one, you have one vacation left. Where are you going? I know you love travel. Oh, it's no question. I go back to my beautiful little island, 
of Paros and Antiparos in Greece. Very nice. I know you lived there for a little while, right? I did, a couple of summers. Very good, very good. All right, so I know you don't do your writing in the morning, and you just mentioned it's it's morning there. You've got your big carafe of coffee, but how do you typically start your day? So I start my day by taking care of myself. So I get up, no matter how rough I may feel from a late night the night before, and I go and I work out. So that's number one. I've got a gym uh, at my house. So I'll go and I'll work out. That's number one. Uh, it's important for me that the kids see me up and doing, I mean, I'm an entrepreneur. I own my own business. I could sleep in and I'm not a morning person, but it's important that my kids see me getting up early. They're getting up early to go to school. So yeah, so I'll get up and I'll go work out first thing and then come back and do breakfast with them. Oh, very nice. What do you typically do for a workout? Depends on the day. So I'm in, I don't know, I'm, I'm lifting weights at least three to four days a week and then throwing in, uh, cardio two to three times a week. And then I'm trying to have one full day off, but I get some sort of physical exercise on that day. And it's, it's normally walking. It's normally walking or hiking, uh, getting outside and making sure I'm getting away from all the electronics and that kind of stuff at least once a week. Very nice. So we have a little bit better idea about how you get your day started And something that really intrigued me was actually a former guest. They brought you up. So a guest of what got you there brought Brad Thor up in the interview. And this is what he said. He said, this guy is a force of nature. And I don't know what he's going to do, but whatever he is going to do, he'll be successful at it. And and this was the first time he met you. Have you always had that get after it attitude? Yeah, ever since uh, ever since I can remember, it's it's part of my DNA. My dad's an entrepreneur. My mom was an entrepreneur, and uh, you only got what you went after. So I, I've always been a high energy, uh, really, really hit it hard kind of a guy. So uh, I'm not listen. That's very compliment. That's a lovely compliment that somebody play, uh, paid me, and uh, I it it resonates with me though because I am very high energy and, and very engaged and. Again, as you and I were joking around about what song would I have as my walkout song as a wrestler, very detail-focused because I think that's where success happens is in the details. Yeah, no, I, I didn't want to put you on the spot with that and make you feel uncomfortable. I think it's just an attribute to you and, and the energy that you have. So I, I'm interested about that. You mentioned your dad was an entrepreneur. What did you think you'd be as a kid? You know what? I always wanted to be a writer, but I spent a good amount of my young adult life running away from it. Uh, I I went to the University of Southern California. That's where uh, my dad had been doing a lot of work. He's a real estate developer. He he was a Marine, got out of the south side of Chicago uh, by joining the Marine Corps. My mom was a flight attendant for TWA. Uh, they both saw the world in those respective uh, their respective professions. And uh, my dad went to school on the GI Bill. And um, <clears throat> when I Excuse me. When I went to uh, USC, I went in as a business administration major because my dad wanted me to take over his business. And I didn't like it. It was boring. It wasn't engaging me. And I switched over to creative writing and film and television production. And when I left USC, I went overseas to Paris. I had a friend who had an extra room and I started working on my first novel. But I got three chapters into it and I quit because I had that voice in the back of my head that I think we all have. Uh, that uh, says, you know what? Don't take the risk. Don't risk the embarrassment. What if you fail? Better to have not tried than to have tried and failed. And I gave into that voice and I shipped my laptop back home and I took all the money I had saved working in college and I traveled throughout Europe. And I had this idea, I'm going to do a TV show. Uh, I thought traveling made me a better American. And I wanted to encourage young Americans to see the world. Don't wait till you're retired to go overseas. So I came back and I did it. It was an incredible lift. It was in that it was very difficult. It was difficult to launch a TV show with no experience and, and get it on stations from coast to coast. But I did it. But that was the size of my fear. I was willing to go through all. I love the TV show, but I was willing to go through all that stress and hassle to avoid doing what was my true calling in life, and that was to to write novels. And I really, really believe, Sean, that that which we're destined most to do in life, we are most afraid of. That is incredibly thoughtful and deep. I'm just thinking about your last few words there, and and think about that in my own life. But I want to jump back to the show for a second, and it was traveling light, correct? That was the title of the show. Yep, that's so, correct. Well, what I love about this is you are an award-winning creator, producer, writer, and host of the show. How does someone who has no television experience control and grasp all of that? 
So I had the basic mechanics. Uh, I learned the basic mechanics at USC in college of doing a show. But it was my dad. He was brilliant. And he said, listen, if you're going to do this, nobody is born with a beard. Uh, B-E-A-R-D. Nobody's born with a beard. And I thought, okay, this is interesting. What does that mean? And he said, Hollywood and television, the film business, it's full of freelancers. So you don't have any experience, but what you need to do is take the focus off of your inexperience and put it on to the experience of other people. Um, so what I ended up doing was researching and finding people I wanted to work with who were freelancers, getting their resumes, and then putting together the team, air quotes, around teams. So I, when I pitched public television and they were asking about experience and everything, I said, well, let me tell you about my team. And then here's this award-winning director and this cameraman and all this kind of stuff. So that what fell to me was getting public television to sign off on this concept and then raising the money because they don't, uh, in my case, they didn't just say, here's money, go do it. I had to go out and find sponsors. But that worked to say, oh, well, you know, I graduated cum laude from the University of Southern California, studied film, creative writing and television production. Uh, but again, showing, hey, this is the team of professionals that uh, who are going to be working with me on this. That's what really helped um, take that, my inexperience, let's say, off the table. The word that comes to mind here is belief. And you mentioned putting together that team, raising money, getting the television network to believe in you. What did you do so well to have all these people take a chance on you? Well, the, my money came before the, uh, the sponsor's money, it turned out. So what I did was I got public television, put me in touch. Uh, they always put somebody on your production to make sure you're abiding by the, uh, <laughs> the extensive rules in public television. Uh, so they teamed me up with uh, a group called South Carolina ETV, which was the, uh, the ownership group, let's say, of all the public television stations in the state of South Carolina. And they were looking to bring new product to market, particularly they wanted to appeal to a younger demographic. So I found someone who had a need and I had a way to fulfill that need. I had my needs too, which was I got to get a production off the ground. So we were able to complement each other. I had a great show idea and they had people on staff, crews, and they offered me a crew. So what I ended up doing was bringing this director who was very well thought of, and he had allowed me to use his reel to show uh, public television, listen, this is the stuff the director's done before, and he had a sizzle reel, and it was really cool how he had put it together, and he had filmed around the world, so it was perfect to use for a travel show. But I went over to Paris to shoot a pilot, and I did it, They get South Carolina gave me ETV, gave me the crew, but this was at a time, Sean, where credit cards, like if you sneezed, like a pile of credit cards would show up on your desk. Uh, if you blinked, your bathtub would be full of them. So uh, I decided that I would finance myself. I figured, you know what, if I'm not willing to take a risk on myself, why should I ask anybody else to? So I paid for that pilot, tens of thousands of dollars on credit cards. It's something like 18, 19, 21% interest. It was crazy. But I got a pilot done. And with that pilot, I was able to then take it to other public television stations to ask them if they would air it. And then once I got the commitment of all these major stations, then I was able to go to a sponsor, uh, different sponsors and say, hey, first of all, here's five minutes of what the show would look like. And if you want, I've got the full half hour. Uh, I can show it to you. And here's the list of stations that have agreed to run it. And that's how that all came together. Brad, you're getting me even more fired up over here just thinking about the confidence you had in yourself. I, I mean, why did you believe that you could leverage all of these credit cards and that failure wasn't going to be an option for you? Tell you what, when I did this, I was a huge, and I still am, a huge Tony Robbins fan. And I had gone to study in Paris. I had gone to school over there. And my mom had, she was an executive recruiter at the time. And she was working for, uh, she had a client called Nightingale Conant uh, Publishing Group. And I had taken over a couple of books on tape. Uh, and one was a book on negotiating. And another one was a Tony Robbins series. And it was the only thing I had that I could listen to besides music because there was no TV in my room. I was sleeping in this little attic uh, bedroom thing. And so I listened to the Tony Robbins stuff over and over and over and over again. Uh, success leaves clues. If you sow the same seeds, you'll reap the same rewards. Uh, that You have to have the acuity to fine tune your approach, your pitch. I mean, I just, I became like this monk in a cell who only had one book to read over and over again. And for me, it was Tony Robbins. And that stuff was very, very powerful, particularly at that time uh, in my life. And I realized that no matter how many no's I got, 
uh, every single no that somebody gave me on my project meant I was one step closer to the yes. And I never lost faith that the yes was out there. And it's just, it's going to be as many no's as it takes to get to that yes. But there was no way I was going to give up carving your own path. What I love too is that you put in as much work as possible and control what you can control. And and now I want to loop in your writing career. You mentioned you moved to Paris, begin a novel. You got three chapters in. What was the book you were writing? Was it your first book you ended up releasing, Lions of Lucerne? No, it's funny. It was not. And I thought that I had lost those chapters for good. I was cleaning out my garage before I went on book tour and I found this old file box and I'm like, what's this stuff? And I pulled it out and it was the inside the box uh, with a lot of other uh, pieces of writing I did in college at USC. I actually found the first three chapters. And I think at some point I'm going to write that book. I'm going to complete it. I, I'd like it to be like the very last thing I write kind of a thing. So I don't want to touch it for, you know, years and years and years and years, decades. Oh, that is so interesting. So talk to me about that moment where you decide to to end writing at that moment, three chapters in. Was it something in the back of your mind you just couldn't escape or was it one day just came to you that, hey, this is too much. I need to let this go right now. Well, you know, I, I say this with, with every ounce of respect uh, possible for the United Negro College Fund. They had commercials when I was growing up, one of the best commercials ever, uh, the best taglines ever, because it stuck with me, which is a mind is a terrible thing to waste. That was their slogan. But I began to take that slogan. I've never forgotten it. I began to take that slogan and shorten it to suit what I was going through. And I shortened it to a mind is a terrible thing, period because of that voice <laughs> that kept nagging me saying, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. Um, I convinced myself that writing was the most solitary act a person could engage in as a profession. And I said, you know, it's no wonder so many writers become alcoholics and so many of them have committed suicide and this kind of a thing. And I just talked myself out of doing the book because it was hard. And even more than being hard, Sean, it, it demands a tremendous amount of honesty and introspection. If you can't be honest with yourself, if you can't fearlessly look inside yourself, you'll never even be a halfway decent writer. So I, yeah, I talked myself out of doing it. And uh, I, filled, I filled that hole, that void in me with travel. And I traveled, traveled, traveled. Then I filled it with all of the highs and lows that come with beginning your own business and trying to get that first customer in the door with my production company. But that voice, that, that, told me, you know, you, you shouldn't do this, blah, 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 blah. It's not going to work out. There was something deeper and stronger and more resonant inside me. And that was the need to write that I'd had ever since I was a little boy. And on my honeymoon, my wife turned to me and said, what would you regret on your deathbed? Never having done. And before I could grab the words out of the air and shove them back in my mouth, I said, writing a book and getting it published. And she said, fine, when we get home, you're going to start spending two hours a day, no phone, no internet, and you're going to start making that dream come true. And so you know, how am I going to tell my brand new bride that I'm a chicken, uh, that I don't have the, the courage and stick-to-itiveness to, to see this lifelong goal through? So it was out of pride. <laughs> Uh, that I, I got, uh, got that fuse lit again and got back into it. And I, I did it two hours, became three, became four, became five. And she'd bring dinner to my desk and, uh, would just keep everything at bay so I could do this. And when I finished writing that first book, Sean, it was the greatest feeling in the world. Uh, it must be what it feels like for people to run their first marathon, climb their first mountain. I knew I could do it again and again and again and again. And just as incredible was the feeling of knowing that when I go to my deathbed, I will not look back and say, what if I'd only tried to go after that dream? Pride can be a motivating factor, that is for sure. I, I love that she brought that out of you and, and got you back to writing, and I know all the listeners and the readers of your work are thankful for that, but let's talk about those two hours each day. You're about to get back into writing. What does that even look like, planning out a new book, sitting down to write anything those first few weeks that you remember? Well... I can tell you a little bit about how it all came together, which is kind of interesting and just shows you the way the universe lines up when you make the right decisions. Uh, so for my travel show, we had gone to Lucerne, Switzerland, and in Lucerne is a, rock, a monument carved into a cliff face. It's a dying lion that was carved to commemorate the 700 plus Swiss guard that died defending King Louis and Marie Antoinette in the initial throes of the French Revolution. Mark Twain called it the most moving piece of rock in the world. This beautiful lion's got a spear broken off 
on its side. And I always liked the alliteration of the Lion of Lucerne. And even back when I was doing my TV show, before I met my wife and had said, I'm going to write a book, I'd like to write a book. I said, if I ever do a book, I'm going to, the title's going to be The Lions of Lucerne. I don't know what it's going to have to do with Switzerland, whatever, Lions of Lucerne. Anyway, uh, my sponsor for my TV show in our second season was Rail Europe Group. And as a wedding present, uh, they gave us rail passes and as many overnight train compartment rides as we wanted, which is a great way to save money. And uh, on our final leg of the uh, of our honeymoon in Europe, we shared a compartment. We didn't have a private one with a lovely brother and sister. I'd been dreading getting on this train because I didn't know who these strangers were going to be. And I just thought, oh, I'm going to have to sleep with one eye open, you know. <laughs> It's going to be, we're going to be in there like with gypsies or bank robbers. I didn't know what it was going to be. And um, they turned out to be lovely from Atlanta, Georgia. And the sister, Cindy Jackson, was a big fan of my TV show. They, they traveled all the time. And turned out Cindy and I had a shared love of books. And we talked about books all night long from Munich to Amsterdam. And she said, are you going to make more TV shows? And I, I had already uh, on the honeymoon told my wife I was going to write a book. And I figured if I kept talking about it, it would make it more real. So I said to Cindy, I said, I'm going to make more TV shows, but what I'm going to do first is I'm going to write a book. Interesting. Okay. I've told the second person now. We get off the train in Amsterdam and uh, we go to exchange contact information. And lo and behold, she's a sales rep for Simon & Schuster. And she told me, she said, if you write that book, I'd like to read it. And if I can help you at Simon & Schuster, it'd be my honor. So on my honeymoon, I'd already had an idea for a book, told my wife I was going to write a book. I meet a sales rep from Simon & Schuster. There's just one element missing, which is what's my story going to be? And believe it or not, my wife and I went from the train station to the hotel in Amsterdam. Our room wasn't ready. And the desk clerk sent us around the corner to get a cup of coffee and a sandwich at this little cafe. And I sit down. My wife has a paperback with her. She starts reading. There's an English language newspaper on the next table that somebody's left behind. And I open it up and I'm flipping through and I find this little intelligence brief. Uh, it was a little column about three quarters of an inch wide and two inches tall. And it was about a Swiss intelligence officer who had embezzled all this money from the Swiss army and was training his own shadow militia high in the Alps with high tech weapons from his own private arsenal. And I said, there's my story. So all of that came together on that trip. And then when I got home, I started doing those two hours a day, but I knew what I was going to write about. We were living in Park City, Utah at the time, and Bill Clinton, President Bill Clinton, had been to visit and ski twice for his daughter Chelsea's birthday. And so I knew some Secret Service guys, and I said, what's it like? How do you secure the entire mountain for a president? And they said, well, it's a lot of work, and you know, we like to keep it open so other people can ski. And so all that bubbled together with this idea of, okay, Swiss mercenaries, why would you hire Swiss mercenaries? Well, maybe they're good in snow. How about kidnapping a president while he's on ski vacation in Park City? And that's how that all just kind of mashed up and came together. Wow. Talk about the stars aligning. There are so many different directions I would love to go right now. We're going to get back to how you go from idea to to writing it down on paper. But something you said that really hit me is when you put it out in public to a second person and, and you let them know your plans, how important was that for you? Again, it was pride, right? So I had the pride factor in there because I told my wife, this was my, my one thing that I would regret never having done. And my wife said, okay, you're going to do it. Now I had some professional pride on the line with Cindy Jackson because Cindy knew me as Brad Thor, the host of traveling light. So there was my professionalism, if you will, was now at stake. So kind of the way my wife viewed me, uh, my, that, that large personal, uh, stake was on the table and now I had a professional stake on the table with a big fan of my TV show. So it, it started bringing together, it's almost like the universe was uh, conspiring to, to hit me from all sides so that there was no way I couldn't do this. And um, so, yeah, it was important that I do that. I didn't tell a lot of other people after that. That seemed to be enough for me, but it was what I needed, no question. Interesting. Another thing you mentioned is when you first finished that book, just the joy, the pure elation you had, was that the biggest moment where you feel like you've arrived or or you've accomplished one of your big dreams? Yeah, there was no question. When I wrote, and I don't write this anymore, but I did on that first manuscript, I typed the end. And it was the most incredible feeling. I've written 19 thrillers now, and it feels really good to finish a thriller but it never feels as good as that first one. That was special. That was reaching the, the top of my very first mountain, and it, it felt awesome. Still feels awesome to finish a book, 
But that was the big one. That had that was a even if I never did anything again after that, that was a major personal uh, accomplishment. Yeah, I have to imagine that has a special place in your heart. Now I want to dive into your idea generation process and how you go from idea to to creating a bestseller. And you mentioned you happen to be sitting in that cafe in Switzerland and and the idea came to you. Do those ideas typically just come out of nowhere for you or is there a methodical process to try to get them out? Uh, So there's a million, there's a million ways I can describe this and a lot of anecdotes. But people say to me, they say, Brad, where do you get your ideas? And I say, I get them in the shower or after the second glass of bourbon. Uh, And it's because that's when I'm really relaxed and that's when it flows. Um, So getting an idea and actually writing a book are two different things because you have to get the idea. The idea can't be forced, but the book needs discipline. So Jack London uh, was famous for saying, you can't wait for inspiration. You have to go after it with a club. And you, throughout history, there have been stories and I mean, movies have been made and plays and all this kind of thing of the frustrated writer who sits down to write and nothing comes. That's where the, the discipline and going after inspiration with a club has to happen. But for me, you can't force the, 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 the idea, that seed that the book is going to grow from. That's got to come naturally. But Stephen King said that a writer is someone who's trained their mind to misbehave. And in my case, that's very true. I look at everything and say, what if? What if this had happened? I watch the news and say, well, what if that's not really the story? What if it was this? So I'm constantly flipping things over and turning them on their head, turning them inside out, just to see if there's anything interesting in there for me. So it's just this kind of mental ping pong that I play with facts to see if I can get an interesting story out of something that at first glance doesn't seem that interesting. You're never starving for ideas, are you? No, uh, particularly now. I finally understand, uh, as crazy as the world is, the Chinese curse, may you live in interesting times. I now understand that. So then I want to know more about just your overall creative genius and then how someone may be interested in writing, how they can help spark that in themselves. You just mentioned you you never are starving for ideas. So are there things a writer can do? Is is it experience in life, travel, anything like that that has helped you along the way? Well, Thoreau had a great quote, which is, and I'm going to, I'm going to absolutely just bastardize it here because I don't have the first part Uh, But basically the quote was how vain it is to sit down and write when you have never stood up and lived. And so um, I I draw a lot from my life experience. I am I, I have a I have a well in me that is never ending of energy and passion and excitement. And I'm constantly on the move and doing different things and seeing different things. And I have this voracious appetite that I want to feed with new experiences. And I feed that appetite in different ways. I'll travel. That's one thing. Um, I also am a huge reader and I believe that you cannot be, uh, a even mid-level good writer without being an incredible reader. I think that's really, really important. Uh, and back to Stephen King again, uh, Stephen King in his book on writing had a great piece of advice, which is to write what you love to read because that's where your passion is. And I actually take it a step further and I say, not only should you write what you love to read because that's where you'll find your passion, but you have a mini PhD in that genre that you probably don't even know about. So if you like fantasy like uh, or sci-fi or political and international thrillers like I write, if you've read enough in that genre, you know why some of the books succeed and some of the books don't. For you personally, I don't mean sales. I mean, you know why you like certain books and certain books you don't. There may be authors who have written multiple books where there's three of them you love and four you don't. And you say, oh, he did this and changed that, or she did this and changed that, and I didn't like it as much as I like these other books. Well, that all goes into this knowledge base that you can draw on as a writer. So I believe part of being successful is having great self-discipline. It really is to be a successful writer. It's seat of pants to seat of chair. Um, Clancy had once said, anybody can write a novel. The key is, can you write a second novel and a third novel and a fourth novel? That's that's really where the talent comes into play. Um, but inspiration is something that you do have to go after with a club. There is no secret way to do it. But every story has been told, Sean. Uh, that's one of the things they taught us uh, in the creative writing program at USC. So you're, you're not going to find a story that hasn't been told. But what you bring that's unique and special is your way of telling that story. 
Uh, I had one teacher once that talked about, did a whole thing. We did a, it was an amazing class where he talked about Jesus and Rocky Balboa. And no matter who argued what in the class, he could make the argument that Jesus and Rocky Balboa was the same story. And it appealed to people for the same reason. Um, so it, fascinating, fascinating uh, class that was about Jesus and Rocky, but it, it, it made sense. And so we talked about the art of storytelling and the craft. And that's where the art and the craft come in is how do you tell a story that's been told before, but you tell it differently. Wow, Brad Thor, those last few minutes, I know we have a lot of writers listening to the show. They are going to absolutely love that. I just took a ton out of that. That's one I'm going to listen to over and over again. You mentioned Stephen King. I actually just read his book on writing two weeks ago. I loved it. It was unbelievable. What else are you reading? Oh, so I am reading all the time in my genre, but between books, I like to read a lot about the art of writing, the craft of writing, because I don't think I'm anywhere near as good as I could be and I should be as a writer. I feel there's constant room for improvement. And that's back to my parents, the entrepreneurs, the the good solid Midwesterners that said, you treat every day on the job as your first day on the as if it were your first day on the job. And when I sit down to do a new book, I always ask myself, is this idea good enough And when I'm done with the book, I say, is the book good enough to get me a contract at Simon & Schuster if they didn't know who I was? Is this good enough that if it was my first book, I would get a deal for it? And so that's really that's really important to me. So I read a lot of books about character development and plot and story arc and all of this kind of stuff uh, in my quote unquote off season, which I'm never off. But between uh, publishing a book and being out on the road like I am now promoting a book. I am trying to learn more about my craft. I think I will do that till the day I die. I will read books about writing and try, even if I only get one thing out of the book, then that means I am, I, by whatever magnitude of that one thing, I'm a better writer. You mentioned you're kind of in the off season right now. I would love for you just to give a, a map of what a year looks like, and then I'd like you to expand upon that, that process of becoming a better writer. So what's that year look like for you? So it's always different. So I've been I've been doing this almost for two decades now. Uh, the books, it's like eight, 18 years. My first book, no, seventeen years. I've been doing it. So every book is different. Uh, I try to pick. I call what I do faction, where you don't know where the facts end and the fiction begins. My job is to give you a white knuckle thrill ride. You take it to the beach, take it to the lake. A lot of people like to plan their vacations around the release of my books. And um, so I do short, crisp, cinematic chapters because I want to entertain you. But I also want to weave real life things into the books. So uh, that if you close the book, having had that great white knuckle thrill ride, you're a little bit smarter or you know a little bit more about this part of the world or this thing about spies or whatever, something that was, I'm not writing a textbook. This is, you're not supposed to notice you're picking up this cool stuff. And if you notice you're picking it up, then I haven't done my job. I just want to quietly weave it into the story. So, um, those, those things, those real life things that I spend time researching can take different amounts of time. So I'll, I may feel like I need a, a lot of runway, uh, to, b- before the, the, the writing can take off and sometimes the runway is a little bit shorter and sometimes it's an ongoing process where I'm, I haven't got all the research done because I don't know which direction the book's going to go and I'm making calls to experts during the day. So the year is interesting. I can't say that my year starts with three months of just solid research and then I write for four months and then I polish for five. Um, uh, it, it is always different. And the key for me is is can I, when do I get that idea? I mean, that's the big thing. If I don't have the idea, I can't even start researching. If I don't know what the book's going to be about. So every year is different, but that's good, right? So I'm the guy that likes new experiences, that's constantly filling up that well with cool things, meeting cool people, going to cool places, reading cool books, having cool experiences. And that keeps me lit. That is the stuff that really, that's the fuel that I put in my, in, in my rocket to, to get me through the year. And it's different every year. And you would think that having written 19 books, it gets easier, but it doesn't because my good Midwestern work ethic is I have to be better. Um, there was a great, every book has to be better. So the bar gets raised every time. So my job gets harder and harder and harder every single year just by the goals I set for myself. So it's, uh, it's, it's exciting, it's different every year, and it's also, it's never boring. And that's what's important for me because if it was boring, I wouldn't be able to do it. And I've always promised my readers who are my employers 
Uh, I don't work for Simon & Schuster. I work for the readers that I will never phone it in. They will always get the absolute best I'm capable of. And one of the books I read over the last couple of years was a book called The Content Trap. And The Content Trap dealt with uh, the impact of the internet on all sorts of businesses. And it had all these great nuggets of, of knowledge and wisdom in there. But one of the coolest ones for entrepreneurs is that uh, one of the biggest mistakes entrepreneurs make in, in trying to uh, increase their sales is they focus too heavily on perfecting the product. Uh, because that's the one thing they have the most direct control over. And it is a mistake, according to the content trap. If you have got an awesome product that your customers are raving about, if you're spending a good chunk of your year tweaking that product, and these are tweaks that, yes, admittedly make the product better, but your customers aren't asking for that improvement in the product, you've wasted time, you're chasing your tail, all this kind of stuff. It was great. I thought it was really cool. I'm like, that's me. I'm constantly improving the product, um, but I can't help it. It's just who I am. It's how I was raised. My readers have not said, you need to improve your product. I just, I, I feel like I have to, that I, I am not honoring um, the trust they put in me if I'm not stretching myself further and further every year. Well, thank you for that. Being an, a longtime reader of your work, it's great to see the continual improvement. It's so funny. A minute ago, you mentioned certain readers will plan their vacations. I have a little vacation uh, my family and I are taking in two weeks, so I actually have not read your newest book, Backlash, because I just want to enjoy it purely on the beach while relaxing. But I want to hear about that internal drive and just expanding upon your own writing skills. So what does that look like? You mentioned reading books. Do you have a note-taking process when trying to improve your skills? Is there anything like that? Well, yeah. Um, so I, I absolutely destroy books when I read them. So I, I'm, I, I'm only going to read a book on writing once, okay? I'm not going to read it twice. So I will highlight, I'll rip out pages. They'll go into a file. So I actually have like an X-Acto knife, a uh, razor blade, a uh, box cutter. I've got these things all over the office and I'll, I'll t- I will slice out pages. They'll go into a folder. Uh, let me give you an example of something I just learned uh, before I wrote Backlash. And you're going to see you're going to see a scene in the beginning of Backlash where the protagonist honors a promise he made to somebody in the, the beginning uh, of this book. It's a very intense, very dramatic action scene in the beginning of Backlash. And I'll tell you what inspired me to do it. So. I decided to look beyond just the regular writing books that here's how you write a novel. I thought, you know what? I like a lot of the writing I'm seeing now in Hollywood. Let me look. I talked to a screenwriter buddy of mine and I said, what are, what are some of the big, give me your top five to 10 screenwriting books that if you were going to speak to a, a young up and coming screenwriter, you'd recommend he or she read these five to 10 books. He gave me a list and I went out and bought all of them. And I, I figured writing is writing, whether it's for, it's, it's different. It's like the difference between NASCAR and Formula One. Uh, Hollywood and uh, novels like I write, but it's still got four wheels. It still goes very fast around a track. It in, it involves a lot of technology. I'm like, great. All right, I'll read these. I'll read these books. So there was one book uh, called Save the Cat, and uh, it, that's a very typical term that gets thrown around with Hollywood writers because they've all read this book. But it opens with talking about creating a special moment for the protagonist that that draws readers in to liking the protagonist. And they took a scene from a movie that I loved from a long time ago with Al Pacino and Ellen Barkin called Sea of Love. And in it, it opens with a sting that the NYPD still does to this day from what I understand, which is they're looking for people who haven't shown up for court, that jump bail, all this kind of stuff. They've got an idea where these people may be, but they haven't been able to track them down and arrest them. So they send letters out saying, you've won season tickets to the Mets or the Yankees, whatever. Come down to the Grand Hyatt Hotel, and we're going to have a big thing. You're going to get your tickets. We, the players are going to be there to autograph baseballs and all this kind of stuff. Congratulations. You know, Three weeks from now, Saturday morning, 9 o'clock. So the movie opens with this sting underway. The cops have posing as like Mets or Yankees, manager staff and PR people get all these guys into a ballroom and they close the doors behind them. And you figure watching this, that they're going to be that they're all going to be arrested en masse together in the ballroom. Al Pacino is hanging out in the hallway outside the ballroom. And this man comes trotting in late, kind of sweating, like doesn't want to miss the opportunity to get the get the tickets and holding his hand is this little six year old boy. He's got his Mets cap on. He's got a ball glove. He's got a baseball mitt on his hand and everything. And see, you know, and this guy, this father has brought his little boy. You know, they obviously love baseball together and everything. And the father doesn't know he's going to get arrested there. 
And Al Pacino sees this and very subtly pulls back the lapel of his leather jacket and shows his badge to the father. And the father stops and it just goes completely, his face goes white. He realizes, oh my God, this is a sting. I'm going to get arrested. And then Al Pacino looks at the little boy, looks back at the father and winks at him and says, I'll catch you later. Such a great, (laughs) such a great scene. And I thought, okay, that immediately makes me like him. It tells me he's smart, he's tough. And that was one of the things that I learned between books last year. And that had a big impact on me for how I opened, um, or or not how I opened Backlash, but what you'll see with the protagonist uh, and how he handles a particular situation in the beginning. So uh, again, 19th book, Sean. This is me constantly trying to get better and to improve my product. I, I love the I love the content trap, but damn the torpedoes, damn that wisdom and advice about perfecting the product. I, I went full ahead. And this year on tour, I have had so many people tell me that Backlash is the best book I've ever written. It is something I've always had people say, yeah, I read it one night. I've had more people come up to me and say, I read it the day I got it. Couldn't put it down. I've already finished it. I did something I haven't done before, which was to give in more to that voice inside me and trust it and let it take me and do things I've never done before in my books. That took a lot of courage. I had to close my eyes and jump off the cliff. I could have done things and had a great book, no doubt, top five, New York Times bestseller list. I I, I have no doubt that I've, I've learned how to do that now, but I really wanted to do something more and do something different and really give readers something uh, special. And so it wasn't only the things I learned in the off year, but it was also um, trying to turn everything inside out, burn it all down and build it back for book 19, uh, because I just don't want it to get stale. I don't want people to say, oh, it's like the same book. You just said it a different point. I don't ever want to get that kind of feedback from from my customers. I don't ever want that. So I prevent that by just absolutely, you know, straining to on some days over every word, every sentence, every paragraph so that I know I left everything on my laptop. There was nothing I held back. It all went into the book. Wow, that is, that's so insightful. And I love how you're constantly raising the bar. You mentioned your 19th book. And it's great to see you not afraid to take that jump and not wait for book 20 to do that leap and jump off that cliff. So I love that. One thing I have to know about is your research process. You, you mentioned you write faction, but you have to be so exact in terms of the weapons they're using, the technology. Could you talk a little bit about your research process? Yeah. So um, you and I have both read, I think it's funny that I would bring up Stephen King on writing and you read it two weeks ago. That's that's the universe. Uh, two weeks ago is when I picked it up. I loved it. it unbelievable. It's a great, great book. Yeah, for the writers who are listening, um, Lessons Learned from a Lifetime of Writing by David Morrell is also fabulous. David is, is one of my inspirations. He's a great thriller writer. Uh, and he's the guy who wrote Rambo. Uh, just there was, I think Rambo was his very first book and he's written a ton of stuff afterwards, not about Rambo, but he's just a really, really smart guy. So Stephen King and David Morrell, two great books on writing. Um, so my research process, I joke around, uh, and I joke around, I'm, I'm pretty serious about the fact that I have no idea what it's like for Stephen King to write a book. And I will never presume to say he's got it easier than I do. But I do know this, Stephen King gets to make up his own rules because he writes about monsters and demons and all this pet cemetery and all this kind of stuff that just isn't real. So he gets to largely create his own rules. I have to operate within a very specific set of rules. So if I'm writing about a SEAL team, I have to have the correct SEAL team. I have to have them in the correct location. All the gear and equipment has to be correct because in my business, my publisher is a B2B and I'm B2C. So I hear from the customer. I hear from that consumer. They find me on Facebook or find me on Twitter and they'll say, hey, Brad, you screwed up. That gun you wrote about in that caliber doesn't exist. And I will politely come back and say, actually, yes, Smith & Wesson made a limited edition 10 pieces for the Sultan of Brunei. Who Not him. I hate the Sultan of Brunei. I'm going to retract that. I don't want to give that guy is a monster. I hate, he is the most anti-freedom and liberty person. So uh, let's just say, uh, uh, the king of Sweden, 
ordered 10 of these guns, being Swedish. Let's give the credit for, for smart and good gun buying, uh, uh, getting something cool to the King of Sweden. So King of Sweden has 10 of these things specifically made. And then I'll share with the fan, here's the article I found, or here's the here's the thing on Smith & Wesson's website about, oh, we made 10 of these 20 years ago for the King of Sweden. And fans really appreciate that. And what, I, I've got several buckets of awesome fan mail or categories that I put fan mail into. And one of the ones that I, I'm really proud of is when I hear from SEALs or I hear from people at the CIA or wherever, and they say, wow, you got it exactly right. When I was in Iraq, I carried that exact rifle. Or when I was in Afghanistan, I had that knife or whatever. When I was here, I was there. Or you get what we're going through at Langley. Or when the DOJ did this, I was a protective uh, agent for the attorney general. And and uh, we had these things in our car and you nailed it. So I, that's a real tremendous source of pride for me. So I have to get those details right. So I'm constantly spending time with the people I'm writing about. And I get invited to do training things, whether it's by the manufacturers of, of the gear themselves or to go train and do things um, with people uh, who are going to go out and do some of this nation's most dangerous business. So I'm hands-on. And anything that you see in my books, I've probably gotten familiar with, unless it's like something that's bolted to an airframe. So there's there's certain uh, cannons and stuff on a spooky uh, gunship that I, I just I've never been up firing cannons out of a gunship. It's not something they offer for even authors to do. So I, it's it's get in there with the details. I like these details. And again, we're back to write what you love to read because that's where your passion is. And my thing, my addition to that is you've got a mini PhD. So I've read a lot in my genre and I like this stuff. So I've been reading about um, all this gear and what these people do forever. So I've built up this knowledge base. You mentioned being hands-on. Was there something, maybe a, a weapon, a course, just a system one of these agencies used that just blew your mind that you can speak of? Uh, well, I'll tell you one of the cool things that I did that I did do is um, the ATF has uh, training facilities in Quantico, Virginia, uh, where the FBI is. And I got to train with one of their lead firearms instructors, and it was really cool. I never knew this. And it, it played into some of the training. I didn't know that the ATF has the most gunfights out of any federal agency. They have the most gunfights because it's all drugs, right? Alcohol, tobacco, firearms, and there's a lot of drugs and stuff like this. They do tons of raids and all that stuff. And their gunfights happen very close. And so there were a lot of techniques and neat things that they do. Uh, but on top of that, I learned that. So when you see Marine One, the helicopter that lands on the South Lawn at the White House and picks up a president, they, the Marine Corps White Tops helicopters, I learned that the ATF actually trains there the pilots from those helicopters. Now, those are Marine aviators, and they still go and get this really intense ATF training. Because if one of those helicopters goes down, like in you know a bad area overseas, or you know, or a rough urban area in the United States, I think of the movie uh, Escape from New York with Kurt Russell, uh, where New York was turned into Manhattan was turned into a maximum security prison, and it was a free for all inside. Um, that was one of those cool things, and I, I learned a bunch of stuff. Nothing that I'm comfortable putting out in the public because I certainly don't want to reveal techniques and in, in stuff that um, that federal agents use. But that was one of those things where I got to do training, and I was like, "Gosh, this is cool. This is very, very thoughtful. They know what they're doing, and they are some amazing pistoleros there." I can only imagine some of the fun times and things you've gotten to see. I want to know now more about your actual writing process. You've done a lot of the research. You're sitting down. What does this look like for you? Well, so first and foremost, I have no formula and I don't outline. Every book is organic. And um, the one thing that I will do because it helps me just kind of keep track of my beats, if you will, the, the heartbeat of the story is... In a Word document, I'll create a table uh, with, eh, I think it's normally five columns. So going left to right, the first column will be a description of what's going on in that chapter. Second column will be what chapter are we in. Then we have day of the week. And then I have time of day at that location because I do a lot of international stuff and I go back, you know, back and forth from DC to London or DC to Cairo, that kind of stuff. And I need to know, uh, you know, the, you can't have people having lunch in both places at once, right? Because of the time change. So, um, but what I do with that first left-hand column where I have a description of what's going on in the chapter, I color code it. 
So is this my protagonist? Is this uh, some other storyline in the book? So that I can tell by glancing back at that uh, table in Word, I can see, okay, it's been X amount of chapters. I haven't seen Green, which is my protagonist, for four or five chapters. All right, I know instinctively from the way I put my stories together that I need to get back to him. That whatever story I've been following or a couple of storylines I've been following, it's time to get back to him. So that's one of the things that I do when I sit down to write. The other thing is, is I want each chapter to end with a cliffhanger. Mickey Spillane was famous for saying the first chapter sells the book, the last chapter sells the next book. But all that stuff in between is really important. You have to get people from the first chapter to the last chapter. And I want to just keep the tension, a lot of tension. I want to give people a chance to breathe, but not too much. I want you to catch your breath, but I don't want your heart rate to go down, if that makes sense. Makes perfect sense. And and something I seem to have noticed over the past few books is your writing style almost seems to have changed. You've always been action-packed and, and you capture my attention at all times, but it seems like the chapters have become even slightly shorter to capture my attention even more. Is that methodical? I think it's a process of me trying to get better. I also think... Um, we have a lot of things competing for our attention. So before the internet and stuff, if you look back at like my early books, Sean, the chapters were much longer. And I had many more storylines, uh, subplots and everything that I was weaving through the books. So the again, I'm creating an entertainment product and it doesn't exist in a vacuum. I have, there's competition for people's attention, for their time, for their dollars. So I have to constantly evolve so I can stay at the top of the food chain where I am and that I remain attractive, right? So I'm the, I'm the husband who doesn't want his wife to lose interest. I'm up and I'm lifting weights every morning. And while I'd love to have like a big, huge uh, bacon cheeseburger for lunch and a pitcher of beer, I'm not doing that. I guess I, you know, I'm going in and I'm having my chicken breast and in that kind of stuff because I'm trying to stay lean, mean, and attractive. And so it's not only my personal life that I'm hitting it that hard, it's in my work life too. Again, my books don't exist in a vacuum. It'd be great. Uh, I, I'm not going to say it'd be great. It'd be different if they did, but I have to remain competitive and I remain competitive by constantly evolving. I will not be left behind. I refuse to be left behind. I won't shut down. I'm turning my kids on to music. You know, I've got two teens, a freshman and a junior in high school. And I'm like, hey, have you heard this? I'm not trying to be too like middle-aged guy that can't let the, the youth go. Not in that sense, but uh, it's part of who I am. I got to feed the beast. Things have to, I can't, I can't have things stay the same because stagnation is death. In any business, stagnation is death. You've got to lean out over the edge, even if you're balancing on a razor blade and your feet hurt, you've got to do it. Stagnation is death. Is that somewhere you've, you've heard that somewhere else or seen that written? No, that actually, <laughs> it's the first time I think I've ever uttered it. Really? Yeah. So I actually have something in my, my home office with, with that saying on there. It was, it was the same thing. I hate stagnation. Really? Yeah, that's unbelievable. So, and oh, I was wow. like, I don't know if I've heard that somewhere else. So it was just, it just really hit me when you said that again. But I love how much attention you put into your own process, constantly evolving, constantly getting better. Who do you see out there? They don't have to be a writer that has just impressed you with, with that internal drive to constantly get better. Anyone come to mind for you? That's, that's a great question. Great, great question. So if I'm looking at, if I'm looking at brands, and people trying to get better. You know, it's funny because I spend a lot of my time lamenting that exceptional customer service seems to be the exception, not the rule. Um, it, so I, I can look at big brands and, and see things that I'm impressed with. You know, I mean, just crazy brands like Audi. I'm really impressed with with what they do in technology and things like that and in racing and the things that they put into their cars. I just think the brand is really good and they've got a devotion to customer service. Um, I happen to have a friend who is a uh, builder and uh, this guy had everyone in his organization, even if you're an intern, you had to read the biography of Cesar Ritz, uh, who, who started the Ritz Hotels uh, and learn about anticipating the customer's needs before they even have them. That really blew me away. But as far as somebody really famous uh, who's constantly, it, yeah, again, I'm going to tie it back to Nashville where I'm from. I, I've been really impressed with Taylor Swift's brand. I know she's had some legal battles go on, but she's uh, she's constantly cranking out hits. She's tried to keep her keep herself out of uh, 
too many cultural and political issues, I think that's a really good brand. Uh, I'm not giving you what I wish I had. If I'd known this question was coming, I would have spent time thinking about, uh, <laughs> you know what, when you talk to a writer and you ask a question, they're going to give you words whether they've got an answer or not. So you're going to get words instead of me just shutting up and saying, yeah, hey, nothing jumps to mind, Sean. Don't worry. You gave me Taylor Swift and Caesar Ritz. I have not read that book, so I'm going to have to check that one out. We've, we've been going almost an hour. I know you've got to get going. We haven't even talked about your newest book yet, Backlash. I mentioned I'm going to be picking that one up to read it in a couple of weeks here. What can the listeners know about this? And obviously, they can pick it up everywhere books are sold, but just give us a, a plug here for the book. Sure. Well, it's my 19th thriller, and I tell people it's like the James Bond movies. It doesn't matter if you've seen all the Bond movies or none of them. You can go check out the latest. So if you haven't read a Brad Thor book before, you can absolutely start with Backlash. And uh, essentially, this is this is me showing something. I actually haven't even seen anybody do this in a thriller before. There is a top U.S. operative that uh, has been the thorn, uh, been a thorn in the side of a very, very bad foreign government. They risk everything to come to the United States. It's an act of war, but they come over here figuring he won't see them coming. They put a bag over his head and drag him back to their country. And doing the research for this book, I said, I want to know what we teach our guys to escape. So I plugged into uh, several different SEER instructors, and SEER stands for survival evade, resist, escape. And the number one thing was that if you are taken, you may only get one chance to escape and you have to have already decided before that chance comes that you're going to take it no matter what. And so the book begins with uh, my protagonist getting his one chance. Uh, but his code, as we talked about in the beginning, when I talked about that Al Pacino scene, he gets his one chance to escape. But before he can escape, he has to do one thing. And this one thing may mean he doesn't get to escape, but it establishes who he is and, and why the bad guys want him so bad. Uh, and it's just a fun chase. There is, uh, there's, uh, the reviewers have said it's part Call of the Wild, Jack London. It's part The Gray, that Liam Neeson movie. It's part The Fugitive, Harrison Ford. Uh, it's part Taken. Uh, and a little bit of Fast and Furious in there. It is just a fun, exciting uh, toes in the sand, book in the hand uh, kind of read that, uh, again, every single person I've met on the road, I'm exaggerating there, but in overwhelming numbers, something I have not seen before on the road, I've had so many fans come up to me and say, you know what? This is now my favorite book of yours. This is the most incredible thing you've ever written. So, uh, yeah, we've got our fingers crossed, see what happens with the New York Times list. But in the end, it's not about where I sit on the Times list. It's about units sold. And the greatest thing that can happen for an author, my publisher could have an unlimited budget and take out ads in the Wall Street Journal and that kind of stuff. But that's not as powerful as word of mouth. So if you recommend, I get all my great books because I've done a podcast and the, somebody like you, Sean, says, Brad, you got to read this book. Or my dad gives me a book or my neighbor says, hey, I just finished this one. It's great. Word of mouth is the best kind of promotion for an author. And based on what I'm hearing uh, out on tour, I'm hoping that the enthusiasm that readers have been, uh, the, the enthusiasm the readers have shared with me, they're sharing with their coworkers and family and stuff like that. Great writers are great storytellers. You've even built up my enthusiasm for Backlash even more. You've continued with Scott Harvath, who I love that character. So Backlash, I cannot wait to dive into it. The listeners know if I have someone on, it's because I respect them. I enjoy their work. So guys, go out there, pick it up. Backlash for sale right now. But Brad Thor, this has been a true honor, someone I've wanted to feature for a number of years. So thanks for making this opportunity happen. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me, Sean. Have a great day. You too. Hey guys, I want to tell you about the brand I'm obsessed with right now. And you guys know I'm pretty obsessive about the brands I work with, especially when it comes to athletic apparel. You guys need to check out 10,000. You need to head to 10,000.cc and you guys can enter code WGYT and you're going to receive 20%, yes, 20% off your entire order. Why do I love 10,000? 10,000 created the only training shorts you'll ever need. They do so by simplifying your options to deliver three premium shorts that perfectly cover all the ways you train. They have one built for versatility, another for durability, and one super lightweight, perfect for one of those runs or whatever else you do for fitness. No matter what you do, they have you covered. CrossFit, running, spin, yoga, lifting, or your weekend adventure, it doesn't matter what you do for fitness. They have a short for every way you train. They make it super simple, too, to find the right short. Just pick the short that's best for you, your lifestyle, personalize it with your individual needs with a custom liner and inseam options, 
and start getting after it. Not sure if they have the right short? No need to worry, you guys. Make a return or exchange. They offer free shipping, free exchanges, and free returns on every order. Like I said, 10,000 is my favorite brand right now. I am wearing their apparel all the time when I'm working out. I can't recommend them enough. Head to 10,000.cc, enter code WGYT, and you've got 20% off your entire order. Making change transpire. That's the mission behind the most amazing tasting protein bar brand taking the nutrition industry by storm. That brand, they're MCT Co., and they make the most delicious, keto-friendly, all-natural collagen protein bars. If you're obsessed with the quality of food going into your body like I am, then head out and pick up these amazing bars jammed with 10 grams of collagen protein. They only have two to three net carbs, no added sugar, and loaded with high quality MCT oil for the healthy fats from coconuts. Whether you're busy running the kids around from activity to activity, a professional athlete, or just someone looking for a great tasting convenience snack, do yourself a favor, head to mctco.com and use code WGYT for 20% off your order. What got you there with Shonda Laney? Uh, what got you there with Shonda Laney? What got you there with Shonda Laney? Uh, what got you there with got you, got you? Thanks for listening to another episode of What Got You There. If you enjoyed today's episode, please leave us a review on iTunes and also share with your friends. Thanks so much. Looking forward to talking with you next time. If you want to stay up to date on all things I'm working on behind the scenes and everything we've got going on at What Got You There, head over to whatgotyouthere.com. You'll also be able to see more on podcast guests and what they're doing. Thanks to Justin Great for providing us the intro and outro song. If you like his music and want to find out more about what he's working on, head over to justingreat.com.